Chapter 21, Part 2 of Woman, Suffrage and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Woman, Suffrage and Politics. The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler. Chapter 21, Part 2. The Congress of the United States Surrenders. Large honorary committees of prominent men, including many contributors and workers in party campaigns, had been organised and were compelling party leaders to sense the responsibility for delay. These leaders were nettled by the senatorial impasse and far more actively interested than ever before. On February the 11th, 1918, the Democratic National Committee and on February the 12th, the Republican National Committee had resolved for the passage of the amendment. Through the spring and summer, this action had been seconded by the action of many state party conventions and by the congressional committees of both parties. So the two national party chairmen and their immediate predecessors all went to Washington to labour with their respective minorities. At last the women heard the cracking of the party whip. For their own part, the suffragists were leaving no stone unturned in the search for the needed votes. Both the hopeful and the doubtful senators were being bombarded with home petitions, letters and telegrams. Deputations of women and men called upon them. The daily telegrams carefully listed on disconcertingly long sheets of paper were laid by secretaries on their desk. Scrapbooks in which were neatly pasted the favourable editorials from the state press were handed to them. Public opinion was vastly on the side of action by the Senate, so it seemed not too much to expect that at least two senators would yield their obstinacy to the overwhelming public demand. The details of one campaign to secure a senatorial vote are worthy of record since it was typical of many like efforts to lose women's suffrage in a thicket of conditions. When Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire died, an amendment vote and a working friend were lost. The Republican governor was urged by the National Republican chairman to appoint a man to the vacancy who would vote for the amendment. The national and state suffragists supported this request by earnest and continued effort while Senators Lodge and Weeks of Massachusetts made appeals for an appointee who would vote against suffrage, and were probably supported by those mysterious forces which had long controlled politics in New Hampshire. Mr Drew was appointed ad interim and was polled in opposition. Mr Moses had been elected at the next election and had voted against the amendment on October the 1st. Immediately after his election, a Republican woman was sent to interview him. The campaign against him had not left him pleasantly disposed towards suffragists, but he was made to understand that the women's opposition had been directed toward his suffrage attitude only. He promised the interviewer to support the amendment should he be asked to do so by a resolution of his legislator as the New Hampshire legislature would not convene before January 1919, 
the National Suffrage Association proposed a still stronger mandate and sent three workers into the state, who with New Hampshire women made a canvas of the legislators in their own homes for signatures to a petition to Senator Moses. The legislature is the largest in the United States, 426 members, although the Senate is small. The signatures of two-thirds of the total membership were secured as petitioning Senator Moses to vote for the federal suffrage amendment and a deputation of suffragists took the petition to Washington, emphasising the fact that a resolution required only a majority vote, whereas the petition carried the names of two-thirds of the legislature. Senator Moses made reply that the petition would not serve the purpose expected and that he would insist upon the resolution. The legislature met the first week in January and a public hearing before both houses was granted to suffragists, after which, by a majority of 74, the House passed the resolution endorsing the passage of the Federal Suffrage Amendment. The legislature then adjourned for the weekend. A hasty poll was made by personal interview with the state senators to make assurance doubly sure and found the majority standing firm for the resolution. Andrew J. Hook, a senator who had not been interviewed when the petition to Senator Moses had been in circulation, now said he would vote for the resolution if the women could bring him a petition from a majority of the members of the Republican town committees in his district asking him to do so. There was but a single day in which to do this work and there were 10 towns to be covered, but it was done. The petition was presented to Senator Hook on January the 14th when the legislature again convened. The resolution came up at once and was disposed of by a vote of six ayes and 15 nays. Mr Hook voted no. An explanation of the way his mind worked was later revealed. After stipulating that he must have a petition from his district, he had gone to the suffrage headquarters and had said that if the women could get 12 senators to vote for the resolution, he would make the 13th. The women replied that the majority was already pledged and that they were already at work upon the petition he requested. When Senator Moses received the news of the action taken by the House, he had hastened to Concord to confer with senators, apparently to urge them to save him from his rash promise. And when the legislature reconvened, three of the most powerful lobbyists of the state were in Concord and at work against the resolution. Mr Hook, learning that enough men had been induced to fall from the poll so that 12 men would not vote for the resolution, ignored his first proposal, never withdrawn and fulfilled with all conditions by the suffragists and remembered only the second. Thus may a politician emerge from under a broken pledge with honour intact. A group of New Hampshire senators explained to a representative of the Manchester Union leader why they had broken their agreements, which they readily acknowledged they had done. They had agreed, they said, to vote for the petition in the full belief that it would be killed in the House, where it was likely to come up first and therefore would never reach them. But one senator had added, You can't depend on this House. It is liable to do most anything. While this campaign was in progress, a letter appeared in the New Hampshire press declaring that the National Republican Committee 
had no right to dictate to senators how they should vote. It was signed by Senator Wadsworth of New York, who had actively and continuously sought to prevent a favourable vote on suffrage by the Federal House and Senate. On January the 3rd, two days before his death, Colonel Roosevelt had written Senator Moses a letter in which he said, I earnestly hope you will see your way clear to support the national amendment. It is coming anyhow and it ought to come. When states like New York and Illinois adopt it, it can't be called a wildcat experiment. Mr Moses considered his opposed attitude justified by the failure of the New Hampshire Senate to concur in the House resolution overlooking the discreditable process of securing that result. Once again, the suffragists asked the perennial and always unanswerable question, why do men repudiate ordinary principles of honour in United States politics when to do so in business and private life would make them outcasts from all contact with decent people? This New Hampshire experience is illustrative of American legislative history rather than the record of an exceptional case. Slippery politicians has become, in consequence of custom, a term of good usage in political vocabularies. In the general result, the November elections changed the control of the Congress from Democratic to Republican. Americans, with their habit of finding the solution of political and economic problems by oscillation between the two major parties, and being hard-pressed by the aftermath of war, had repudiated the Democratic Party at the polls, so that while the 65th Congress had been Democratic, the 66th was to be Republican. The Democrats, who were friendly to suffrage, realising that the Republican Congress would submit the suffrage amendment and thus win the loyalty of unknown numbers of new voters, now made desperate attempts to pass the measure before the session should close and put an end to the 65th Congress. Open and private letters to senators were sent by members of the Democratic Cabinet. Several caucuses of friendly Democrats were held to try some new approach to gain the needed two votes. There were similar conferences of friendly Republicans. On December the 2nd, on the eve of his sailing for Europe for the peace conference, President Wilson addressed a joint session of the Congress and included in it another earnest appeal to pass the federal suffrage amendment. On December the 8th, the National Suffrage Association held a woman war workers mass meeting in Washington from which hundreds were turned away for lack of room and an overflow meeting was held. At both meetings, resolutions urging the submission of the amendment were adopted and a copy was presented to each senator. The date of February the 10th was at last fixed for the vote on reconsideration, and the amendment was lost by a single vote, the record standing 63 to 33. Not a senator had changed. The gain of one vote had come through the appointment of William P. Pollock of South Carolina to a vacancy. He accepted the president's advice and not only voted for the amendment, but spoke for it, a fact which threw his state into an uproar of controversy in which abuse was more often heaped upon him than praise. Twenty states cast all their votes in Senate and House in favour, and three 
Alabama, Delaware and Georgia, all their votes in both Senate and House against the amendment. Only three senators west of the Mississippi River voted against. Borah of Idaho, Reed of Missouri and Hitchcock of Nebraska. Both senators in nine states voted against the amendment. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia and Alabama. New York suffragists felt keenly that the one lacking from their majority was their Senator Wadsworth. And what is a representative for, if not to represent, they asked. And what constitutes a mandate from a constituency? By a majority of more than 100,000, the state had enfranchised its women in November 1917. In the winter of 1918, the legislator had called upon him by resolution to vote for the measure. In September 1918, his party, meeting in state convention, had called upon him to vote for the amendment, and he was himself a member of the Resolutions Committee, which presented the resolution. This action had been taken at the request of a majority of the Republican County Conventions of the state. In 1918, the National Republican Committee, by resolution, had called upon him and other senators to vote for the measure and in 1919 his legislator had again called upon him to support the amendment. Women knew of no stronger expression of public demand that could be made. Turning to history, they found no mandate so complete given to any congressman at any time to persuade him to sacrifice his individual inclination to the public demand. Following the vote, the woman citizen, in an editorial entitled They Shall Not Pass, said men come and men go, but a truth goes marching on. Not a banner will be filled, not a marcher will break step, not a friend will desert, not a political party will falter, not a newspaper will lapse into silence. All the way down the lines leading from Washington to New England, to the solid south and to the great west, those with ears to the ground will hear the tramp, tramp of millions of feet responding to the call. Forward, forward march. And there will be men's feet, women's feet, soldiers' feet and children's feet in that mighty tramp. It is the tramp of the people. They shall not pass. They shall pass and soon. The amendment having been voted down could not again come before the 65th Senate but Democrats convinced that the failure of the Democratic Senate to pass the amendment would prove a handicap in the coming election, were unwilling to give up. A serious effort was made to devise a slightly different form of the amendment, which would not only win the one vote needed, but allow consideration. Men and women from the South went to Washington and attempted to unite their party senators upon such an amendment. Most of the forms drawn were unacceptable to the suffragists, but one was finally approved. Two senators of the opposition agreed to vote for it, and the two-thirds vote was therefore assured. The resolution was introduced and referred to the suffrage committee, where a favourable report was promptly secured. The end of the session was approaching, and owing to senatorial procedure, in the closing days unanimous consent was necessary 
to get the favourable report upon the calendar. Most, if not all, the Democratic opponents agreed to make no objection to unanimous consent. Optimistic Democrats claimed that a large additional Southern vote would be secured should the amendment come to vote, since the proposal was certain to pass. To this optimism was opposed the assurance of hostile Republican senators that the House had agreed to find objection to the new form and would not agree to the amendment even though the Senate should pass it. They further declared that there was no assurance that a suffrage amendment would ever pass. Since House leaders had also agreed not to allow any form of the amendment to pass the 66th Congress, even though such provision should pass the Senate. Both claims were false and in any event there were votes enough to pass the new amendment in the 65th Senate. The chairman of the Senate committee was on watch day and night to find opportunity to ask unanimous consent for the presentation of the favourable report. At this point it was observed by many friends of the measure that Senators Wadsworth and Weeks spelled each other in a vigil so that one or the other could always be present to object whenever consent should be asked. This small incident aroused much additional acrimony. The friendly Democrats again contending that the Northern opposed senators were merely postponing action in order to throw to the Republicans whatever political credit might accrue from the passage of the amendment in the 66th Congress and Republican senators accusing the Democrats of attempting to cover their years of opposition to federal suffrage action by the appearance of support at the 11th hour. Both accusations contained much truth, and the sorry fact was that the 65th Congress adjourned with the amendment not yet submitted. From one of the earliest ships to bring soldiers from France, a lively boy soldier ran down the gangplank ahead of his fellows, and astounded the group of women waiting to serve coffee and sandwiches with the excited question, Have you got it yet? Got what? they inquired. Why the vote? he answered. Not yet, replied the women. Whereupon the young patriot ejaculated in a tone of scorn. Oh, hang! You ought to be ashamed. The German women have it. The more intelligent people of America had come to much the same opinion. The President's war message to the Congress and the 100 congressional speeches that followed had implied that entrance into the World War was necessary to prevent the recrudescence of an autocracy-ruled world. Making the world safe for democracy had become the text of sermons, speeches and appeals pronounced on behalf of conscription, food conservation, extra production, liberty loans and loyalty pledges. Though an American ambassador said to an English audience in 1921 that the United States had gone to war to save its own skin, this was not the interpretation given in the midst of the contest. On the contrary, the moral aims of the war were more and more stressed in all the Allied nations as the campaign to uphold the home defences proceeded. The leaders everywhere seemed in accord with General Smuts of South Africa when he said that the war was a great crusade for human liberty. It began, said he, as a great military war, but all that has happened has transformed it into a great moral and spiritual crusade. During the years of the war, the story of the unexpected and heroic services of women 
had been inextricably interwoven with all reports of the war for democracy. Mr Balfour said in the United States, behind every man in the trenches, there are ten persons making it possible for him to stay there. In 1917, seven of the ten were women. General Joffrey said, we have two armies, one in the trenches and one behind the trenches. The one in the rear is composed largely of women. In the United States, the women were not lagging behind those of Europe in heroic war services. A Woman's Council of Defence, with Dr Anna Howard Shaw as chairman, had united the women of the nation in the home defence work and various organisations were sending hundreds of women overseas. The National Suffrage Association was itself maintaining a hospital in France. It was after the women of Great Britain, Canada, Germany and many other countries had been enfranchised that the Senate, on February the 10th, 1919, again refused to allow the Federal Suffrage Amendment to go to the legislators. The contrasting generosity of the British Parliament had been shown January the 4th, 1919, when, in 78 minutes, it passed a bill of 78 words, making women eligible to sit in the House of Commons. American leaders of both political parties were by then battling hard with their respective reactionary minorities, for it was by then clear that there might be an enormous advantage accruing to the party that should finally enfranchise women. The spirit of these leaders had come to resemble that of an omnibus conductor in London during one of the great suffrage processions. After a vain attempt to make headway through the surging crowds, he shouted, Oh, sigh, give women the vote and let's get on with the traffic. The armistice came. Bloodless revolutions erected republics where Kaiser and Emperor had once reigned and elections were held for Reichstag and state assemblies in which all men and all women were permitted to participate. The press carried the news to the farthest corners of the earth that millions of German women had not only voted but that 30 had been elected to the Reichstag. This was the spirit and these the events of the world while in the United States the willful 33, as the press quite generally designated that bipartisan minority of the 65th Congress, refused to budge. They showed no comprehension of the changed thought of the world, nor were they characterised by that party loyalty, which demands that men yield personal prejudice to the superior claim of party advantage. In accordance with the plan adopted in 1916, at the Atlantic City Convention, the National American Woman Suffrage Association State Auxiliaries had continued hard at work during the winter of 1919 and before the end of the legislative session, 24 state legislators had petitioned Congress to pass the Federal Suffrage Amendment and five of these, New York, Idaho, Nebraska, Ohio and Missouri, had called upon an opposed senator to change his vote. Before May the 1st, 1919, the number of states in which presidential suffrage had been extended was 14. One of these, Michigan, had entered the full suffrage list in 1918. And in one, Vermont, the governor had vetoed the presidential suffrage bill.
inclusive of Arkansas and Texas, where women had the right to vote in the primaries. Women would vote for presidential electors in 30 states, a fact which was still proving the most persuasive of all arguments for extending full suffrage to women in all states. The president called a special session of the new Congress to meet May 19, 1919. On May the 21st, he addressed it and again recommended the passage of the Federal Suffrage Amendment. The amendment was introduced by six members in the House, promptly reported by the Suffrage Committee on the 20th and placed on the calendar for the 21st. James R. Mann was now the chairman of the Suffrage Committee in the House and to his organising abilities, the quick work of getting the vote was due. The amendment was brought up almost immediately on the 21st and after two hours of discussion, it was passed by a vote of 304 ayes, of which 200 were Republicans, 102 Democrats, one Prohibitionist, one Independent, 89 nays, of which 19 were Republicans and 70 were Democrats. 42 votes more than the required two-thirds had been secured. 71 of the affirmative votes were cast by representatives from the southern states. The Democrats polled 54% of their membership, the Republicans 84% of theirs for the amendment. Of 117 new members elected in November, 103 voted for the amendment. 15 returned members changed from negative to affirmative and no affirmative change to negative. The Democratic National Committee, not waiting for the Senate to act, called on the legislators of the various states to meet in special session and ratify the amendment. On June the 4th, 1919, after a two days debate, the measure again came to vote in the United States Senate. Four amendments were submitted, all by Southern Democrats, for the obvious purpose of securing delay. One by Senator Underwood of Alabama, proposed to refer the ratification of the amendment to state conventions. One amendment to this amendment was offered by Senator Phelan of California, defining the character of such conventions. One was proposed by Senator Harrison of Mississippi, introducing the word white as defining citizens. One by Senator Gay of Louisiana, providing that enforcement of the amendment be left to the states. All were lost. Three times the galleries violated the rule against demonstrations. There was applause when Senator Spencer of Missouri defended Missouri suffrage sentiment against his senior colleague, Senator Reed. Laughter when Senator Underwood, who shared dishonour with Senator Reed as the chief obstructionist in the debate, absent-mindedly gave a loud eye when his name was called on the main amendment and then hastily changed to no. And a great wave of rejoicing when from the chair, the voice of the presiding officer, Senator Cummins, rang out more clearly than the galleries had ever heard as he announced the victory. 66 senators had voted aye, 30 had voted no. The crowds of women issuing from the Senate chamber that day did not sing as they had done on January the 10th, 1918, the day the amendment had first passed the House. 
to their weary senses, the only meaning of the vote just taken was that the Senate had at last surrendered, given over its stubborn resistance, given in to the people it represented. The eyes were the eyes of Congress, but the voice was the voice of the people. That afternoon, in the presence of representatives of the National Suffrage Association and many friendly senators, Speaker Gillette and, on the following day, Vice President Marshall signed the Federal Suffrage Amendment with a gold pen, christened the Victory Pen, now in the archives of the National American Woman Suffrage Association at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. I join with you and all friends of the suffrage cause in rejoicing over the adoption of the suffrage amendment by the Congress. Please accept and convey to your association my warmest congratulations, cabled President Wilson from Paris. A parting reception was held at the big suffrage house before it was closed forever as a suffrage headquarters. The thanks to men who had helped were spoken and many a hearty hand clasp of suffrage workers and faithful friends in the Congress marched the close of the long battle. The association thanked the political parties for their help and asked the continuance of their support. The parties congratulated the association and promised that support. Only a few weeks earlier, the suffrage association had finished with state referenda. Almost coincidentally, it had come to the end of its work with the Congress. It faced now a new era of suffrage work, the work for ratification. End of chapter 21, part 2